One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for the award-winning seating. They always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Newsroom Robots, the podcast where we explore the intersection of artificial intelligence and the news industry. I'm Nikita Roy, data scientist, media entrepreneur, and one of the many founders currently building their ventures at the Harvard Innovation Labs. On the Newsroom Robots, I'm excited to bring you insightful conversations with industry experts about how AI is impacting the way we do journalism. This week's episode is a continuation of my conversation with Simon Villison, the founder of Dataset, an open source tool for data exploration and publishing. Simon, who's been a JSK fellow at Stanford University and a software architect at The Guardian, now works on building open source tools for data journalism. He's also renowned for his work as the co-creator of the Django Web Framework, a key tool in Python web development. In the first part of our conversation, we delved into the latest OpenAI features unveiled at the company's first ever developer conference in November. In this episode, Simon walks us through all the open source tools he's built to help data journalists and discusses the transformative role of generative AI in data analysis. The next thing that I want to really dive deep into is the power of all of this in terms for data analysis. You've been working a lot, especially been working on data set and open source project, especially designed for data journalists. And you're doing a lot of work there for the journalism industry and how they could be using these tools for advanced data analysis, basically. And ChatGPT has this new feature of code interpreter that we were talking about. It's also a place where you can just write code, upload data sets, ask it in plain language. Talk to me more about specifically, let's get into data set. What is it and how could journalists use this? So data set is my main job. It's an open source project I've been working on for six years now. And the initial idea was that I wanted to build software to help news organizations publish the data behind their stories. You know, if you do a piece of data reporting and you put out a story, I feel like that story is much more potentially impactful and much more trustworthy if you publish the numbers as well. And the idea originally came when I was working for the Guardian newspaper in London, 
And I realized there was a reporter there, Simon Rogers, who was collecting data about the world every day for the infographics that he published in the newspaper. And the data was in meticulous Excel spreadsheets that he kept on the computer under his desk. And we got talking about this, like, hey, what would it take for us to publish the spreadsheets in addition to the, the stories? And we ended up building a blog. We built the Guardian data blog. And every time we published a data-driven story, we would stick a Google spreadsheet up with the numbers. And it was amazing, like really the simplest thing that could possibly work. But we had a community of people who were doing their own visualizations on top of that data and all of this kind of stuff. It's something which a lot more newspapers are doing today. The New York Times, the LA Times, the Washington Post often have GitHub repositories with CSV files in backing their stories, which is wonderful to see. But I always felt like there should be a better way of publishing data, like a Google Sheet is fine up to a point. It's not exactly an open format. There are size limits on it. You can, it doesn't have a great API. So I wanted to build software that could take data in any shape or size and stick it online in a way that both lets people browse it and search it and filter it and so forth, but also lets other developers integrate with via CSV and JSON, extract their data out, build new things on top of that data. So the first version of Dataset was exactly that. It was a web application which you can give data in the form of a, a SQLite database file, and it would give you a web interface where you could click through and browse and find and reorder and all of that. And it would also give you a JSON API so that you could start building software against it. But then on top of this, I added a plugin system. And this was inspired by WordPress, where WordPress is a great CMS for running a content website, and it has 10,000 plugins that add every other feature you could imagine. So if there is a problem that you want to solve in, involving uh, publishing content, WordPress plus half a dozen plugins will solve that no matter what that problem is. So I wanted to do the same thing, but for data. You want to publish data online or you want to explore data, dataset plus the plugin that puts the points on a map or the plugin that adds a GraphQL endpoint or whatever should be able to solve that problem. Today, there are about 130 dataset plugins, which is good. It's a good sort of healthy start. And I realized as well that I'd been thinking about publishing, but there was actually a more fundamental problem in data journalism, which is if somebody gives you data that is larger than fits in an Excel spreadsheet, how do you then work with that, right? If you, maybe you load it into a Postgres database and do it, write a bunch of code and so forth, that's quite time consuming. And so my hunch was that there's this whole sort of, there's this sort of middle size of data, too big for Excel, not big enough that it's worth hiring programmers to work with it, that just wasn't getting analyzed at all. And so data sets started growing in that direction as well. And like, okay, what are the tools I can build? So if somebody gives you a million rows of hospital capacity data from the state of California, what is the step in between getting that data, maybe from a freedom of information quest, and writing a story and reporting on it? You need something in between that helps you analyze and work with and visualize and share that data with other people in your newsroom. And so that's the niche that Dataset is now fitting into. It's supposed to be this sort of multi-tool for working with medium, like small to medium-sized data sets, which in news is almost everything that we do. So I was building that, and it was software that you had to install on your computer. And if you tell a journalist, step one is install Python and then use Python to pip install dataset and then do this, and that is not reasonable. And so I finally admitted to myself that I need to build a hosted version of this, right? Journalists, I need to be able to say to a newsroom, click this button and you will have dataset and it will be private. You can upload data into it and explore it with your newsroom and all of that kind of stuff. So I've been building that product out. It's called Dataset Cloud. And it is pure, it is the hosted version of the open source product, which again, 
WordPress did this, right? WordPress is open source. You can run it yourself. Or WordPress.com, you can pay them and they will host it for you. And they, they host a vast portion of the internet now on top of that platform. So then the question came, then about eight months ago, I had a crisis moment when I first tried this ChatGPT tool called Code Interpreter, which is now a feature of ChatGPT that any, any paying customer can use. Eight months ago, it was just a, a little preview thing. It lets the ChatGPT can now write Python code and run that Python code. And you can also upload files into it. So you can take your CSV file with a million rows, upload it into ChatGPT, and ChatGPT can then write Python code that opens that CSV file, finds which values are the most common in this column, visualize it as it draws you charts, all of that sort of stuff. It was like it had taken everything on my roadmap for the next two years and implemented that as a side effect of the other stuff that it was doing. Like it was, on the one hand, I was looking at this thing going, this is what data journalists have always needed. This is the coolest tool I've ever seen. And then I'm thinking, okay, what am I for? I thought I was going to be, be solving this problem. So as a result, I'm slightly pivoting data set in terms of I'm thinking, okay, if ChatGPT code interpreter is better for this than data set, data set plus LLM technology needs to be better than code interpreter for the subset of problems that data journalists have. And so I'm starting to, and because I've got a plugin system, I can build plugins that add AI features, which is great. It's a really good way of experimenting with what you can do with this stuff. I built a feature this morning that I'm really excited about, where say you've got a table with 10,000 rows in it, and maybe it's these police reports. Maybe each row is an unstructured like police report, and you want to extract the names of the arresting officers. I've built this feature called enrichments, which lets you take data in a table and enrich it in some way, which means run some kind of transformation. And the thing I got working this morning is an enrichment where you can select a table or a bunch of rows in the table and say, okay, now construct a prompt from these rows that says, extract the arresting author's names from this colon, and then put in the text of the PDF and put that in this other column. And so then you click a button and it will churn away and it will make 10,000 GPT 3.5 calls and use that to, to populate a new column with the names of the arresting officers. That's really exciting, right? That's a sort of a, a way of applying these language models directly to any problem which can be expressed as a table full of data. And in my experience, almost everything can be turned into a table full of data if you try hard enough. Though the extensions of that come down to things like, okay, now GPT Vision, find me, like give it a bunch of photographs and say, run this prompt against all 5,000 of these photographs, that kind of stuff. But that I'm really excited about. And so the next AI feature after this one is going to be a version of the thing where dataset lets you run SQL queries against your data, which is great if you know SQL. But if you don't know SQL, that power is being lost on you. Chat GPT is very good at writing SQL. So you can do things like, I have this question, turn it into a SQL query, run that query and give me back the data. The bad news is that in my experiments with this, 80% of the time, it generates the correct SQL query and you get back the right answers. And 20% of the time, it makes some kind of subtle mistake and maybe you get back the wrong answers. But the problem is that if you're not a SQL expert, how are you supposed to tell the difference, right? It, it gave you an answer. How are you supposed to know that one in five times it's wrong? So the thing I've been looking at is, okay, I don't want to just do, you ask a question, you get an answer. I want to do, you ask a question, it shows you it's working and gives you the answer of part of that. So I wanted to be able to say, okay, based on this question, I looked at this table, this table, this table. Here are some example rows from those tables. I joined them in this way. I filtered like this. Try and give people a fighting chance of spotting if it's made an obvious mistake. And I don't know if that's going to work. It might be that 
nobody actually looks at the additional information and it doesn't help people. I'm optimistic that it can work out. So these are great examples of the kind of things where I feel like really what my so- I want my software to be able to do is gener- help generate leads for you. I feel like using AI to write stories or to tell you facts about the world is inherently risky. I feel like it's unethical to get an AI to, to come up with news and then publish that news. That's, that's clearly wrong. But if you've got an AI where one, it gives you stu- leads and some of those leads turn out to be false, which is, I mean, anyone who's got tips as a reporter knows that lots of leads don't work out. But if at least some of those turn into stories you wouldn't have told otherwise, that feels to me like a win. Like that feels ethical. It feels like a really great way to apply this technology. And data set is basically this tool to basically help uncover stories from data that you don't necessarily maybe have the capabilities of coding and programming. It's data that's more than just having it in a Excel file that you can ask it questions, but now you can put it onto data set and ask questions there and be able to understand your data and generate tips and leads from there. Exactly, yeah. And the difference also is with, I also want to touch upon ChatGPT's code interpreter, which is that exciting new feature that people are doing right now. But you were talking about kind of an issue with the privacy concerns and the security concerns that we had just spoken about two weeks ago, about how data leakage can happen over there if you're putting into ChatGPT. I also want to touch upon that issue you were talking about. The privacy and security stuff is very difficult, partly because the AI companies are so opaque. ChatGPT, as OpenAI had said, we do not train new models on things that are submitted to us via our API, but we do improve our models based on your interactions with ChatGPT as end users, which is terrifying, quite frankly. You know, we putting all sorts of stuff into here. The nightmare scenario is that in six months' time, they release a new model and it starts spitting out private things that I had told it when I was using it to other people. I don't think that's likely to happen because OpenAI won't tell us how they are using our data. I can't say with confidence, don't worry, it's not going to spit out your social security number of things that you've told it to other people because they won't tell us. They won't reassure us that that in terms of what they're doing. If you're using the API, the threat is slightly different in that you might use the API and it might log stuff in their servers. And then if they have a security hole, which they've had a few security problems in the past, they might end up inadvertently leaking the data that you gave them to other people, to attackers, which could be catastrophic. And this is why, you know, if you're doing the Panama Papers, you really want to be investigating running models on your own hardware. Like there's a certain class of reporting where the risk of just passing it to even a, comp- even a company with a great track record and security People still have vulnerabilities. Occasionally, somebody will break in. The more your data is spread out on different data centers around the world, the higher the risk that, that it's going to, going to leak in some way. And so data side is different from code interpreter also in the way that you're not taking and training data based on that, right? Not in the slightest. Data set, it's very dumb. It's a front end to data that you have collected. You can run it entirely on your laptop. There's a, a thing that I built called Dataset Desktop, which is a Mac Electron app that installs Dataset and runs it for you. And then the cloud version is, is running on encrypted, secure, but at the same time, I don't want to promise that I will never have these security vulnerabilities in that. I'm trying very hard not to, but it's the, the nature of hosted software. But you can download it locally as well as an app that you have done. Exactly. And if you're a Python developer and you know what pip install data set means, you're fine. But if you're not a Python developer, I've been trying to build versions of it that you can install without having to have that, that sort of knowledge of how that stuff works. And can you share an example about how Dataset can really help uncover stories? Like what way in which you're able to do this? 
So my absolute favorite example is the problem I have with Dataset is it's open source, so you can run it, and you don't have to talk to me about what you're doing. So I have almost no visibility into what people are actually doing with my software. Like I always say to people, if you use it for anything interesting at all, please tell me, because I'm not going to know otherwise. And the most exciting application of it I've heard so far was the Bellingcat, the reporting organization out of, mainly out of Eastern Europe, who do incredible work with, um, with open source intelligence, which is the original meaning of the term open source. Nothing to do with software. It's um, reporting based on openly available information that is out there in the world, like things on social media, all of that kind of stuff. But anyway, Bellingcat, um, they also deal with leaked data. And about a year ago, somebody hacked into the Russian equivalent of the DoorDash food delivery app. Like there was this food delivery app in Russia, the most popular one in Russia, loads and loads of orders, and somebody got their entire database. And in that database were all of the orders that the Russian FSB, the security agency, had been making from their office, because their office is in a part of Moscow that's not near any other restaurants. They would eat, they would order in all the time. And that means that this database had the names and phone numbers and email addresses of the people working in that building. And when they were working late, like on the 5th of September, somebody was working at 11 p.m. and they ordered this food. So Bellingcat got hold of this leak and apparently they loaded into my dataset software running privately inside of their organization to give their reporters and their investigators an interface for searching through this data. And then they started doing things like, um, turns out that the Russian driver's license database had leaked as well. So then you can start doing things like correlating the names of the people who are ordering the FSB building with their driver's license data, which gets you addresses, which the whole thing unfurls. You can start finding out some very, very sensitive things about the spies working in this organization. And that was all the data set in the middle of it. And I heard that that was on the Bell and Cat podcast. Oh, uh, somebody tipped me off and they heard about it. Oh, yeah. So exciting, right? That's, that's what I'm building the software for. I am um, one of my, my ambition with data set, which was originally a joke. I wanted to help somebody win a Pulitzer. Like I want somebody on earth to win a Pulitzer Prize where data set was one of the tools that they were using. And I said this to somebody a few months ago and said, no, that's not a joke. That's a good goal. Like, like say that, Let's go out there and say, yeah, I want this to be a participant in a piece of Pulitzer Prize winning, Pulitzer Prize award winning journalism. And I do, that would be really exciting. That would be an incredible goal. <laughs> to achieve. And, you know, I think one of the other questions that I'm having is about how can we make AI more accessible and useful for journalists, you know, with limited technical backgrounds. It's already, I feel like large language models have flattened that curve, but what are the challenges that you see are remaining there? So one of the biggest challenges is that ChatGP large language models are really difficult to use, but they don't look it, right? It's a chatbot. You chat to it, it chats back. How is that hard? That, that's obviously the, the easiest thing that could possibly be. But the challenge is that to use it effectively, you have to know all sorts of things about how it works, what it's good at, what it's bad at, under what circumstances will it hallucinate and lie to you? Like, what are the kinds of... Like, why shouldn't you ask it mathematical puzzles, right, which it's going to get wrong? One of the really frustrating things is that... Knowing what the things are trained on is one of the most useful ways for being able to anticipate, will it be able to answer this kind of question? But of course, they won't tell you what it's trained on. Like one of the biggest secrets in all of AI is what ChatGPT and GPT-4 were trained on. So you end up having to, the way to learn to use these things is you have to build up a sort of intuition for them. And the only way to do that is to play with them a lot. Like I've been using them for 
I mean, I was using them with GPT-3 before ChatGPT came out. So I've probably got a year and a half, two years of experience with these tools now. And I've got a very good intuition about what's going to work and what isn't, but I can't share it with people. It's really difficult for me to sort of download my intuition into other people's heads. And I feel like the, the one position says giving people really useful exercises helps. Like I've been trying to figure out what's a great way to get it to make an obvious mistake really early on, because that first time you use it and it tells you something is blatantly wrong, kind of inoculates you a little bit. It breaks that initial image of these things as like omniscient AIs that know everything about the world when they're absolutely not. So when I'm teaching people how to use these, I try and focus on busting the mystique. Like one of the reasons I love the ones that run on my own laptop is they're really bad. Like they are no way near as capable as ChatGPT, but that kind of helps you understand what they're doing a little bit more. Like using a cheap, bad language model that makes stuff up all the time you realize, oh, okay, so the big ones are just this, but they're, they're better, but it's still the same class of thing. So yeah, that's, then in terms of how we can help people, coming up with exercises to help people is good. I also think we need to move beyond the chat interface. Like chat is a terrible UI because it doesn't give you affordances that help you understand what these things can do. One of the exciting things about GPTs is that you can at least customize them and say, okay, this is the GPT that summarizes things for you. And this is the one that will give you feedback on the on the language that you've used in your article. That's kind of cool. But also just going beyond the chat interface and say, you know what, we're going to innovate on how we present the UI to people so that they've got a better chance of understanding what the thing's good at and what the thing's bad at. And there is a lot of innovation happening around that. We're beginning to see some really cool demos that aren't chatbots, which I find really exciting. But yeah, that's this, everything is so open right now. You could invent a new interface today that no one has ever tried before. And it might end up being one of the better ways to interact with these because there's been so little innovation yet in going beyond chat for how we talk to these things. Yeah, exactly. And I actually, when I was reading your blogs, there was this bunch of quotes that I was like, I love the way you phrase things. And I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Like your tweets and one thing you'd said over there is like we're fighting back against 50 years of science fiction when we try and explain Completely. what this stuff does. <laughs> Right. Well, another reason I love the ones that run on my laptop is when you see a little four gigabyte file on my laptop, write a bad poem, that is not going to break out of my laptop and do a Terminator scenario and take over the world. Yeah. Right? That is not happening. They, they're spicy autocomplete. Like it's good at, it can complete sentences and write things and so forth. It is not the science fiction version of these things at all, but it can pretend to be, it can imitate science fiction because it's been trained on science fiction. So if you want to get into role play, an evil Terminator, it will, it will happily do it, which just makes it even more confusing. 
But one more big question is about the hallucination that happens with the advanced data analysis feature and like the code interpreter and also then with data set. How should we be taking precautions? How much of the hallucination are you seeing? How much should we be trusting analysis that comes out from there? And like, how should we be then experimenting with it carefully? So this is really difficult. So Code Interpreter, I have done quite extensive sort of like data analysis projects with this thing because you can upload files into it and then tell it that you want it to find the outliers in this database and then plot these things in the graph. And it does all this stuff perfectly. And it writes Python code to do them. And you can see the code that it's written. But I've got 20 years of experience as a Python developer. So I can look at this code and I can very quickly tell if it's gone off the rails somewhere, if it's made a mistake, if it's going down the wrong rabbit hole. If you don't speak Python, what are you? What on earth are you supposed to do with like sort of fifty lines of, of obscure code that, that's happening in the face? And it does occasionally hallucinate and make things up. I had a terrible incident with ChatGPT plugins a few months ago, where I built a plugin that lets ChatGPT actually talk to my dataset application by running SQL queries against it. It was super cool. And then I asked it to, I hooked it up to a database that had details of all of the software that I've released, all of my software releases. And I said, show me the 10 most most recent releases. And it said, Dark Side of the Moon by Pink Floyd and this by David Bowie and so forth. It gave me a list of 10 album releases that were not in my database. And I looked at what it had done and it had run a SQL query. And then for some reason, instead of giving me the results, it had just made stuff up. Eventually, I figured out what had happened. It did run a select star query, which selects all of the data in the table um, from this table. And my table had readme files in it, which were really long. And it turned out that the data it got back was more than 8,000 characters of data, which was its size limit. And as a result, it threw away everything that had come back from my API, and it just made everything up. And that's a catastrophe, right? That is a showstopper bug. I believe that might be fixed now purely because GPT-4 Turbo has 128,000 tokens. So it's much less likely that you run into this weird edge case. But that honestly shook my faith in what I was building. I stopped developing that particular plugin because if I can't guarantee to people that it won't just sort of buff off overflow itself, get back too much data and then invent results... It's worthless, right? So yeah, things like that are really, really concerning. I love Code Interpreter. I love that it shows you the code. And I love that you can then take that code and show it to other people. I feel like one of the most important protections we have here is fact-checking. It's like journalists don't publish a story without getting somebody else to review that story. And if you talk to the really good data journalism teams, like the team at, I think I talked to the team at Reuters, and they do exactly the same thing with their data reporting. They have two data reporters evaluate the numbers independently and then compare their results. Like they do a fact-checking process, which is actually about code review on the, on the analysis that was done. It's very expensive. You need twice the staff to do that kind of thing. But honestly, that's what we, the way to think about language models is, I always think of them as a sort of weird kind of intern where they're very junior, but they've got a didactic memory. They've read all of the documentation and they're very ambitious and plucky and they will, any problem you give them, they will go right at it with that sort of early 20s confidence that they can't make mistakes. (laughs) And 80% of the time, they'll get it all right. And 20% of the time, they will go wildly incorrect somewhere. And your job is to manage them. Like you really do have to manage what these chatbots are doing for you. You have to be aware that they are really just spicy autocomplete. It's amazing how much you can get done with a model that knows how to complete a sentence and complete paragraphs and so forth. But they are not trustworthy. And you have to 
distrust and verify everything that they do. And if you get good at that, they become an incredible productivity boost. I estimate the time I've spent actually writing code, I'm two to five times more productive now because I have language models assisting me with that code writing. As a programmer, that's only 10% of what I do. I spend a lot more time thinking about and doing specs and talking to people than I do actually hands-on keyboard. But my hands-on keyboard productivity has gone up by a factor of two to five, which is very material. But it's a lot of management work. These are not things that you can just trust to go away and do something. You have to be very, have a very critical eye to everything they're doing for you. So will ChatGPT code interpreter turn non-programmers into skilled data analysts? Not on its own, but what it can do is it can help you learn those skills. I feel like some people are saying it's not worth learning to program anymore because the, the chatbots can program for you. I think there has never been a better time to learn to program because with the assistance of these things, you can learn so much faster. Like when you're learning to program, you get a weird error message and you get stuck and you bang your head against it for three hours or you give up or you wait until tomorrow where you can talk to somebody who can help you out of this. Paste an error message into ChatGPT and nine times out of 10, it will tell you what's wrong and it'll help you fix it. That's amazing. Like as a learner, having a sort of always on teaching assistant who mostly gets things right, occasionally is prone to wild conspiracy theories, super overly confident, but they're there. They're there for you at three in the morning and you can push things through them and they never get tired. That's amazing as a sort of, as a way of helping you learn things. I agree with you. And I, I remember you said also, I read somewhere in your blog that you have shipped co like code in Apple Script, Go, Bash, JQ over the past 12 months, and you're not fluent in any of those languages. Right. Yeah, that's amazing for me. I'm not fluent in them, but I'm, I know enough to be able to read code that's written in them and see if I'm confident it's doing the right thing. And then when you, the great thing about code is when you run it, it either works or it doesn't. And so if it's hallucinated, it doesn't, you'll, you'll catch that in the error. So actually, the skills you need to be developing now are you need to get really good at QA. You have to be really good at evaluating a piece of code that has been written and actually executing it and trying different things to it and making sure that it does what you wanted it to do. Because if you can QA the code that these things are building for you, then yeah, now you can be incredibly productive. You've got your weird coding assistant that can knock out mostly working stuff, and then you've got the skills to knock that into shape and to make sure that it does what you need it to do. And I can't agree with you even more that this is the best time to learn coding. Like if I had this tool when I began coding, the learning curve would have been not as steep as it was. And just people can, it just democratizes learning, I feel like. Right. That learning curve, the learning curve for, for learning to program is horrific. It is absolutely savage because I know so many people who've tried to learn Python and they eventually got so frustrated with it because they couldn't get the development environment working. And then they did, and then they got a weird error message and all of that. Make loads of people just give up. They go, I'm not smart enough to learn to program. And that is absolute rubbish. It's not that they weren't smart enough. It's that nobody warned them that it is going to be absolutely tedious for six months and you will feel like you're getting nowhere. And then eventually you'll build a little thing that works and runs and you'll start building that confidence. But if you never get to that point, if you don't get to that win, you'll probably give up because it is awful. And it's easy to forget that. I've been programming for 20 years. The, the, the frustration is, is long behind me, except then I'll try and do something with JavaScript and NPM and Webpack and I'm right back there. <laughs> so um, even like I am teaching myself new programming skills that I previously found too frustrating to learn because I've got this magic debugging buddy that I can throw things at and it can help me get out of holes that I fall into. And I think if anything, if anyone listening to this is even thinking about data journalism or is excited by it or has ever had the 
intent to code or was curious about it, this is like the best time to do it right now. Right. And I love that, that we have this problem with human society right now where you have to get a computer science degree to, or you have to at least get the equivalent of that in order to automate computers and get them to do tedious things for you. That's ludicrous. Every human being, I think, has the right to get these devices to automate tedious tasks, to do work for them. And I feel like language models and the fact that they can write code and so forth, maybe we're getting to a point now where you can be a journalist who codes and you don't end up having to become a coder with a sideline in journalism. That's so much more exciting to me. I want I want people in all sorts of professions to be able to do the kind of like wizardry that I can do when I've got a little like thing that I need to automate and get done. That's my utopian version of the AI revolution is that people get to control their computers. They get to automate the stuff in their lives that can be automated. And we'll start with the journalist because that's the, the field that I'm most excited about. But, but everyone deserves that. Everyone should be able to do that. Yeah. And I feel like this is the first time you're seeing technologies that are like nailing that the opportunity of like building something that was probably impossible before if you had that opportunity. Like if you don't know how to code, that's it. You had to stop there. But now you can get this to write code and build applications, do anything, analyze data for you. It's a skill set that you haven't been trained on, but you're it's giving you this extra superpower in that way. The most exciting example of this that I've seen, this is a demo that came out in the last few days. There's this thing called TL Draw. It's like a web-based drawing package where you can draw boxes and lines and things like that. And last week, they added a experimental feature where you can draw a mock-up in this thing of like a user interface, and then you click the Make It Real button, and it creates a HTML and JavaScript working prototype of the interface that you just gave it. It's actually using GPT-4 Vision under the hood. It takes like a screenshot of the of the image that you've made, and it throws it to GPT-4 and says, turn this into HTML and JavaScript. And it's unbelievably effective like you can literally like sketch out a napkin version of the application that you want to build with a bit of text that says and when they move this slider it should calculate the new mortgage rate and you click a button and it gives you a working prototype where when you move the slider it recalculates the mortgage rate wow it's <laughs> so cool it's so cool it's open sourced as well it's it's just this thing that they, they put out there we should link to it in in the show notes absolutely that's incredible. And I think I can I can just keep on talking about this forever, about all the exciting developments that have been happening. And we've covered quite a bit in today's episode, especially about all the open AI chaos and how you've been experimenting it with it a lot. And I think getting into really talking about how journalists and data journalists can use it has been very interesting. I want to kind of close things off and wrap it off with... Understanding, you've spoken a lot about use cases that you've been using in your life, but how has AI been a part of your entire day-to-day life? How has that integration been? Has it changed, actually, since ChatGPT came along? Very much so, yeah. So GPT-3, the predecessor to it, it didn't have an official interface, but it had an API, and it had this thing called the Playground, which was like a little API explorer tool that you could use. And I was using that in the same way that I use ChatGPT today. Beforehand, I was like using it for some of the things that you can do with ChatGPT, using it to um, as a thesaurus, like I need the word that means this and little bits and pieces like that, little tiny bits of code. And then ChatGPT came along and suddenly the thing that I'd been sort of doing a little bit had a much nicer interface and was super available and lots of other people experimenting with it too. And so I would say I've used ChatGPT most days since it was released. So it's been almost a year I've been using it on an almost daily basis and I use it for so much different stuff. As a programmer, I'd estimate probably 40 or 50% of my usage is related to programming. 
because it's amazingly good at programming. It can I can help me figure out what API methods to use. I can get it to write a little sketch of code that I then in, improve afterwards. I can get it to do like little experimental benchmarks and all sorts of stuff like that. So I use it for code all the time. I use it a lot as a writing assistant. I very rarely publish text that it's written. I almost never do that. But it's incredible as a as a, a thesaurus or I can't quite figure out how to word this sentence or all of that kind of stuff. So I use it like that. I use it for entertainment constantly because it's just screamingly funny, the things that you can get it to do. Especially my favorite entertainment thing is some um, ChatGPT voice running on your mobile phone. And um, they just recently released where you can talk to it and it talks back to you. And the synthesized voice that it uses is spookily good. Like it changes its intonation based on what it's saying to you. And I, I get it to do things like I say, perform a rousing speech about why my local town should install cozy little boxes for the pelicans to live in on the bay. <laughs> and it does. And you come out of it going, wow, I'm inspired now. We should totally do that. Um, you can do improv games with it. Like it knows all of the improv formats. And I actually got it running on two phones at once and got it to do an improv scene with the two phones talking oh, to each wow. other. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> and and this stuff is it's all it's like I would never you don't want to record this and publish it to people. It's not funny if you sit but when you do it yourself as a sort of form of personal amusement, it's just it's just wonderful. And um, it's an amazing brainstorming companion. And tip I always give people is ask it for ideas, but always ask it for twenty. Because if you ask it for an idea for X, it will give you the world's most obvious idea for X. But if you say give me twenty ideas, by number sort of fifteen, there might be something that it'll never give you the idea you use, but it'll give you something that gives you a little spark that you're like, oh, hang on, that's got me thinking in an interesting direction. So as a brainstorming companion, I'm really using it all the time. I got it to brainstorm software features for my software that would help data investigative reporting. And I forget them now, but it, two of the ideas led to something. And that's crazy. Like this is spicy autocomplete. Should not be, people will tell you it can't have an original idea. Turns out it can, especially if you ask it to go at the combination of two fields, like ideas for marketing my software as a service platform based on marine biology. And it will spit some stuff out and it'll be 90% garbage and 10% garbage that gives you an ins a little spark of inspiration. And then there's the image generation ones as well. The ethics of those are, if anything, even more complicated than the ethics of the text generation models, because fundamentally you are commissioning art from a thing that was trained on the art of the people who would have got that commission otherwise without their permission. That's just obviously morally bad, but it's still fun. Like I use it to generate absurd images of... Um, like concept art of things, just ridiculous, like ridiculous, cute and fun stuff all the time. That's endlessly entertaining. So I'm using them for entertainment a lot. I use them as brainstorming companions. As a programmer, I think programmers are the class of professions that is best served by them right now, because it turns out they are just shockingly good at writing code in all manner of different programming languages. It's one of those things that makes sense when you think about it, because the the grammar rules of English and Chinese and Spanish are very complicated. The grammar rules of Python and JavaScript are trivial, like they fit on a single page of A4. So it's actually no surprise that they're so good at producing code that works. And that's also another one of those things where when they were building these models, originally these models were supposed to be good at translating like from one language to another, in like English to French, they didn't know they'd be good at writing code as well. That was a bit of a surprise to the people building the models when it turned out that they were so effective at this stuff. It's one of my favorite patterns in AI is when it turns out these models can do something nobody anticipated they would be able to do, just these weird new emerging capabilities. But yeah, so I'm constantly finding new 
sometimes amusing, occasionally sort of terrifying ways to, to use these things. Sometimes terrifying. <laughs> But but this has been really very interesting. I like the entertainment one. I'm going to go play around with that and just (laughs) entertain myself with with maybe some improv with ChatGPT. Um, Get it to write Onion articles, because if you ask them to invent jokes, they come up with terrible jokes. Like the jokes very rarely work. If you tell, but the great thing about stuff like The Onion is that it's, the whole point of the Onion is it's supposed to look like an article on CNN, but about something absurd. So if you give it an absurd topic and tell it to write a satirical news piece, it will be flawless. Like those are screamingly funny because they're so good at imitating the style of serious news while while the story they're telling is something completely ludicrous. Very interesting. I'm going to go try out that and have some fun with it. <laughs> this has been a really fun use case that you've shared. Out of all of the, <laughs> maybe all the heaviness that we've had, throughout the episode of talking about security and privacy considerations. We can go and try some fun use cases now with ChatGPT and get it to do some improv and write an Onion article for us. Maybe write an Onion article on this entire episode. (laughs) Oh, you joke, but I bet if you fed the transcript from this into maybe Claude, yeah, it would totally work. Yeah. (laughs) Also, when you get it to tell you stories, it it always tries to get the stories to, and everyone was happy, happy in the end. It biases towards people agreeing. If you tell it, but add a dark twist or add a, add a dystopian twist, it does. So you can sort of try and prompt it to be slightly more interesting with the stuff that it tells you. Interesting. Okay, I've got my work cut out. <laughs> I'm going to go to work, play around with it. Simon, this has been so much fun chatting all things OpenAI, the chaos. I feel like being able to recover from that whiplash of these five days of what it was with you and break that chaos down. And then also just talk about all of the amazing work that you've been doing to help us journalists with open source platforms like Dataset so that we can do and do more work and do more better journalism. So it's been a lot of fun there. I do actually have one last thing. If anyone wants to talk to me directly about this stuff, I love having conversations about this. I am very available for like one-on-one conversations about any of the stuff that I've been talking about, specifically with data journalists. If you are a data journalist, there is no part of me that would not want to spend time talking to you. So please reach out. I do an office hours thing on Fridays. You can reach me via email as well. I would love to talk to people who are either using this kind of thing for interesting stuff or want to, or just curious. I'm always open to conversations. Absolutely. And I will link all of that in the show notes. So feel free to reach out to Simon. And I think it's been incredible. Just the knowledge that you've been able to talk about all of this and break down all of these complex concepts has just been incredible to have this conversation with you. So thank you so much, Simon, for coming on the podcast and joining me. And I'm very excited to see how Dataset evolves as well. And hopefully we can see that Pulitzer Prize one day. Oh, that would be amazing. Absolutely. Yeah, thanks. This has been really fun. It was really great talking to you. That was Simon Willison, the founder of Dataset. Stay updated with the Newsroom Robots podcast and sign up for our newsletter at newsroomrobots.com. This podcast is made possible thanks to the Harvard Innovation Lab's Spark Grant. I'm Nikita Roy, and this is Newsroom Robots. Newsroom Robots.